You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. Here my friend was, finally on the doorsteps of becoming the President of the United States of America. And then just a few minutes later to be in that uh, kitchen area when I heard the pops, which I thought were balloons popping. Olympic decathlete Rayford Johnson, today on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. So let's go back to 1960 and the Olympic Games that year. That was the year that a 26-year-old named Rayford Johnson won the gold medal in the decathlon. He'd won the silver medal four years earlier. He was Sports Illustrated's Sportsman of the Year in 1958. He was even drafted by the Los Angeles Rams. But his achievements didn't end when his athletic career did. Rayford Johnson went on to a successful acting career in the 1960s and 70s. And Johnson also became politically active in the 1960s. And that is how he found himself in the kitchen at the Ambassador Hotel that terrible night 55 years ago this week when Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. My thanks to all of you, and now it's on to Chicago, and let's win there. You'll hear him talk about that in just a few minutes. Uh, I made the move, got the gun. I met Rayford Johnson in 1998 when he wrote his autobiography, a book he called The Best That I Can Be. So here now from 1998, Rayford Johnson. Is there a, a reason the book has 10 chapters? I, uh, in discussing uh, how we would lay the book out uh, with Phil Goldberg, who wrote the book, uh, we thought that it would be a great idea. Uh, I think it initially came from me, but uh, Phil certainly uh, was the one who filled uh, in the, the chapters. It would be great to lay it out uh, like the decathlon, uh, 10 different events, uh, 10 different chapters, starting with 100 meters and ending, ending with the 1,500 meters. It, it does provide a very nice, neat framework for because your life has had so many distinct, yet, of course, related elements to it. Uh, very much so, and, and, and a lot like life, uh, you, you, you start that first event, and you p- compete as, or be as good as you can be, and you move on to the second event, but you really can't think much about the last event or yesterday because if you do that, you're going to lose focus on what you're trying to do right now or today. And if you think about tomorrow, the third event, the next event, then you, again, can't focus totally on what you're trying to do right now. So uh, it, it, it worked, and, uh, and I'm pleased the way it turned out. And in both the decathlon and in life, some of the skills from one event or one time to another are the same, but other skills, you might need different parts of your body, different strengths for different events. No question about it. And you're, you're jerked around. You're, you're moving back and forth, up and down and in and out. And you, uh, because of the variables and because of the demands that are made uh, and because of the competition itself, you really know, don't know precisely and specifically what you're going to be called on to do. And uh, for those reasons, I love to be part of the decathlon. Uh, each athlete was uh, having somewhat the same thoughts. Uh, they're getting tired as you move along. Uh, the competition uh, is tight. Uh, there's some wonderment as to how you're going to come out on top and what place you're going to finish. Uh, there's this thought of looking forward to those very complicated events and difficult situations like at the 400 meters in the fifth event, which ends the first day, and the tenth event, the 1500 meters, which ends the uh, the second day of competition. And y- your, your mind wanders and, and moves all over the place, and it's really important that you continue to focus on what you're doing and continue 
on a regular basis to evaluate not so much what you've done or what you're going to do, but what you're doing at the moment. You've, uh, you've had other opportunities over the years to write a book like this. Why, why now? Why not earlier? I sure did. Uh, and, and in fact, uh, just uh, a week before I started writing this book, or at least met the agent who put the whole idea together, I was approached by uh, some people in Southern California to do an oral history. Mm-hmm. And I thought, an oral history, that's great, but that's going to take so much time, and I could maybe have written two chapters. Well, about three days later, I listened to Bishop Tutu speak, and Bishop Tutu gave a very inspirational uh, presentation. He talked about South Africa, what was going on there, his friendship with Mandela. Uh, to make a long story short here, I uh, asked a minister friend uh, if he knew anybody that might be helpful to me if I did write the book. He said, I, I'll bring someone right now. Went and got Lynn Franklin, who was uh, Bishop Tutu's agent. Uh, she had me call her, following which I did. Uh, I tried to get a writer locally, couldn't find one. She said, well, talk to my friend Phil Gorberg, who I handle. I met Phil. He'd written a book called This Is Next Year. He's a uh, was raised in Brooklyn. Uh, mm-hmm. The Dodgers lost mm-hmm. several years straight to the Yankees. And so his title is This Is Next Year. <laughs> and uh, with people so often saying, wait till next year. Well, Phil and I worked it out. It just worked so well together. We sent those results to Lynn. She approached uh, three publishing houses. Uh, Doubleday was uh, the one that uh, was the most interest because of Eric Majors, who was the publisher there. He had actually seen the Olympic Games in 1960 as a spectator and knew a lot about me and a lot about track and field. So consequently, it all seemed to work and fall together. Thus, uh, we got the book published. I gather you were quite a hero to him. Yeah, actually, he was a, we called him track nuts uh, in those <laughs> years, but someone who really followed and knew track and field, and in fact was a uh, track competitor himself. So it was, uh, it was uh, maybe not as a difficult sell as uh, it could have been. <laughs> your dad says you were always a good runner, but your mom said she could outrun you? That's for sure, and uh, uh, I, I, I learned a lot from her, and certainly heredity plays a large part in how we turn out. And, and I thank my mom and dad for for the way they took care of uh, me and, and my brothers and sisters, and actually the interest they had in other kids that be, that became our friends in this little town of Kingsburg, California. I, I think, uh, and I give, I pay tribute to those people who came across my path and who helped me actually be the best that I could be, because without them, uh, uh, certainly I wouldn't have had the accomplishments that uh, that I've had the chance to uh, to uh, to have. You know, sadly, I guess over the years, some a lot of books like this tend to become almost formulaic. You can almost predict where they're going to go before you, you open the book and start reading. And yours broke the formula because I didn't expect to see that, as you were describing Kingsburg, not exactly uh, Ozzie and Harriet perhaps, but a lot closer to that than a lot of, uh, a lot of books like this would start out with horrifying stories about uh, discrimination and incidents of racism and blatant uh, incidents that, uh, that scar people, the, the kinds of things that tend to scar people for life. I think uh, part of the reason that happened, uh, and there are a lot of reasons, uh, it's, it was a Swedish community and they, they seemed as a people to be very tolerant. And uh, certainly uh, our family being the, the first uh, family of color to live in the city limits, and we were only one of two families at that time uh, to live in the town and go to the schools. I had only one other uh, student of color, a lady in my class. Otherwise, uh, it was uh, the, 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 the kids in the, in the town were all white. But we fit in being a Swedish community. Uh, if you looked at the phone book, it was uh, Swinsons and Swansons and Jensons, but Johnsons and more Johnsons than anybody else. And I'll never forget uh, when I went to this little town of Reedley, 12 miles away, to compete in my first track meet as a freshman. 
uh, two gentlemen walked up along the fence and said, uh, you know, we're looking forward to this class of 54. They're, they have a lot of talented athletes, but we're particularly looking forward to seeing this little Swedish runner run by the name of Rayford Johnson. <laughs> so I fit right in from the very beginning. <laughs> I would have guessed you more for Danish than Swedish, but that's... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when did the, fir- the the nugget of an idea in your form in your mind that you were Olympic material. Maybe that maybe that this was a possibility for you. Well, when I uh, Merle Dotson, who was my high school track coach, uh, really was a thorough person. He he read and kept up with and talked to other athletes and coaches who knew a lot more about it probably than he did. But he certainly knew enough to inspire us. He moved me from event to event. One year, when I first started, I was a, a sprinter and a and a high jumper. He changed me in, in next year to a, a long jumper and a hurdler. And I got a chance to do all the different events. And in 1952, he took me down to Tulare, where Bob Mathias was competing in the Olympic trials. Bob had won the Olympic Games in 48. He subsequently won in 52. And when I left that field that night, after seeing all these athletes com- compete for, the, uh, for a spot on the Olympic team, Merle Dotson, my coach, said, Rafer, you can be better than anyone there. And I remember on the field was Bob Mathias, who won two gold, Milt Campbell, who actually beat me in 56, who won a silver behind Matthias and a gold then in 1956, and then Floyd Simmons, who'd won a silver medal or a bronze medal in those games. And I said, why could he say that? Well, I don't know if I completely believed him, but I did continue to do what he wanted me to do. We worked hard, we focused, and eventually it turned out, I think, even a lot better than maybe he even thought uh, it would happen because I did, in fact, become a member of the Olympic team and subsequently the Olympic champion. After this short break, Rafer Johnson takes us back to the Ambassador Hotel that terrible night 55 years ago this week. Now back to my 1998 conversation with Rafer Johnson. What does it do to a young man's head to see his picture on magazine covers and all of a sudden you're a national hero? Well, you know, uh, I was pleased by all of that, but I think a large part of it I, I knew and even feel today and will always feel that, uh, yes, I mean, I had some great things happen to me, but they would not have happened to me if I just had to depend on my skills and, and my abilities. Just, that's not the way I would have gotten it done. But I did get it done with those two factors, plus the fact that people were willing to help me. And, I, and, and, and so I applaud every time I see something like that in terms of an accomplishment for myself. I mean, I applaud those who helped me get there. Did you worry at that point, what am I going to do to top this? No. You just go on right to the next thing, and one day, sooner or later, you'll have another chance uh, and another opportunity, and, and that's what I always look forward to. You had some opportunities that uh, most people don't have. You had opportunities in television, the movies. I did all those things, but, you know, it's like, it's like the decathlon. You know, uh, <laughs> I don't think you do anything forever. Uh, I learned as I went along. I had some tremendously new and wonderful experiences that added in, in, in the most positive ways to my life. I made some wonderful friends along the way, and, and it all adds up then basically to the decathlon of life, which I, I've thoroughly enjoyed. But you also had to make some very difficult choices along the way, including a choice in the late 60s if you're going to pursue a, a career that could have become a very lucrative career or if you're going to go with your friend Bobby Kennedy and yeah, decide to back it, him up. You know, it wasn't uh, easy. I don't want to make it sound like I had this uh, life that was so easy and that I didn't have to really make any tough considerations and, and decisions because I did have to do that. But uh, when I really look back on it, as difficult as they might have seemed, they were pretty easy choices uh, that I ended up making. And that particular choice to help Robert Kennedy is one that I am absolutely and totally 
pleased that I made because he was at the, at that point a good friend of mine. Uh, he was someone that I thought as a political leader could uh, involve individuals, which he was interested in doing and uh, obviously wanted to do. Uh, he was the person who I thought could uh, lead us maybe in a new direction uh, where we could all get involved and, and make our cities and states and country a better place for all of us to live. And I was inspired by Robert Kennedy then, and I'm inspired by Robert Kennedy today. Yet I would imagine when it came time, when you and Phil, when it came time, you ha you have to talk in the book about 1968. You have to understand, you, you had to in, put in the book the events of that terrible night. That must have been very painful for you to know that you were going to have to talk about that in this book. Which is why I put off writing this book for so long. One reason. I, I just couldn't deal with it in the depth I was going to have to deal with it. Uh, it was one of the highest moments of my life was when he was at the podium uh, accepting the victory for the state of California and saying on to Chicago and probably would have gotten the presidential nomination from the Democratic Party, I was as high as I could possibly be because here my friend was finally on the doorsteps of becoming the president of the United States of America. And then just a few minutes later to be in that uh, kitchen area when I heard the pops, which I thought were balloons popping, and looking up and seeing... Uh, a gentleman who I got to know as Sirhan Sirhan, firing a weapon at Robert Kennedy. Uh, I made the move, got the gun. Uh, Roosevelt Greer was there at the same time. I asked Roosevelt to remove his hand so I could take his hand away from the gun. And I literally had to pry his fingers off the gun. He was like it was a part of him. And then took the gun, put it in my pocket, and looked across the room about three yards to see Senator Kennedy lying in a pool of blood was just the lowest I'd ever been. So I hear I'd gone from this unbelievable peak to this point so low that I, I can't remember ever being that low and that disappointed. And uh, it had a uh, terrible effect on my life, and, and I'm not sure that uh, in my lifetime I'll, I'll ever completely be totally at ease by what went on that evening. The years that followed, as you tell in this book, the years that followed were very troubled years for you in, in, in light of that effect. Well, it was, I, I, because I, I thought that uh, Robert Kennedy was definitely going to make a difference, and I always felt that I could be with him. I wasn't interested personally in running for political office, but I was definitely interested in being of whatever assistance I could to him, particularly if he was elected president. And, and whether he was or not, he'd still serve this country well, and I wanted to be with him. And so I, I went through a long period of time wondering what I should do and how effective I could be. And I think what we all basically came down was that we just need to get involved in the process as much as we could and maybe begin to do the kinds of things that the senator himself would be doing. Uh, Robert Kennedy would be active. He, he would be impatient uh, with uh, uh, how things moved if we weren't uh, moving quickly enough. And uh, so I just jumped back in it in that way in terms of giving something back in charities, particularly Special Olympics at that point. And uh, uh, again, uh, what we all need to do is not only be concerned about how we're feeling and what we're thinking, but uh, more importantly, seeing how we could be of service to someone during the course of a given day or week. You have had such a remarkable and remarkably varied and remarkably full life. What is next for you? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm doing, trying to do this event well and uh, uh, make considerations uh, of things that come my way in whatever form they do in, in you know, future days and months and years. Uh, uh, hopefully it'll be some easy choices. If not, I'll make the tough choice. But part of whatever I do, wherever I ever am, I'll be looking for ways to give something back to my community and to my country. I think that that uh, certainly is a, is, a, is a part of the way I need to live and, 
and hopefully uh, a part of the way uh, all of us can uh, do a lot more in terms of uh, making those contributions that need to be made. Rafer Johnson died in 2020. He was 86. And you can get your copy of The Best That I Can Be by clicking on the link in our show notes or by going to our website, heardeverything.com. And heardeverything.com is where you'll also find my 1998 interview with another well-known Olympic champion, Jackie Joyner Kersey. There are people out there that know a lot about me, but they see me as this great athlete, but they don't know the challenges that I was faced with and how I dealt with those different obstacles and how I had to be very strong mentally. And my 1991 conversation with yet another Olympic star, Carl Lewis. I was very naive. All the way, even through the 84 Olympic Games, I was very naive. And I had to learn it myself, on my own, with my family and friends, and I had to learn it the hard way. And of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, her lifelong ambition was to be a successful novelist. But first, she created Sex of the City. My 2003 interview with author Candace Bushnell. When Sex and the City came out, the question was, can a woman have sex like a man? And when the show went to England, it was a huge debate. I mean, they had news shows with people debating this for half an hour, and they went on and on and on and on about it. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Bill Thompson.